usually when I start a sermon or something, I try and start with some kind of like current day anecdote or a story you're familiar with because I recognize that the biblical text is so ancient and, and so old and oftentimes confusing that it, sometimes we need a link to, uh, uh, to enter into it. But tonight is what, not one of those nights. Tonight, the text, uh, at least leading up to the one I'm going to preach from, is quite clear. And uh, so we actually have two entry points. One is the text that Collins just read. I know it's summer in Bellingham, but in the narrative that we're about ready to enter, it's springtime in Jerusalem. It's the week before the Passover, and Jesus has just entered in uh, to Jerusalem. So thank you, Collins, for reading that setup for where we're going. The second um, uh, introduction is what I want to draw upon from our friend uh, N.T. Wright in his For Everyone series, which can be hit or miss, but he kind of nails the introduction here. So let me just read this to you. Once upon a time, there was a king who wanted to give his country a new lease on life. He decided to capture a city that none of his people had lived in before and to make it his capital so that no one would feel either proud that their city had been chosen or excluded because it was someone else's. The problem was is that the city was perched on a high rocky crag and was very, easily to def- or very easy to defend against attack. That is, of course, another reason for wanting to own this city. So the inhabitants of this city saw this upstart king, David, and they laughed at him. They knew that they'd have no trouble fending off his attack. All the regular guards have gone off duty, they said. We put the blind ones on watch and told the lame ones to take messages. They'll do the job to keep you out. But the king knew a better trick than that. He knew however strongly a city was built on a hill, it needed one thing, water. And he discovered where the spring of water rose, and that was the way in. So he set his men a challenge. Get up the water shaft and fight your way in. The first one up will be my new general. So up they went, and they took the city, and it did indeed become the capital. But he didn't forget soon the scorn of the local people and what they'd said about the blind and the lame coming to him, keeping him out. So he made a rule. No blind or lame are welcome here. No reminders, please, of the mocking enemy. The king, of course, was King David. The city, of course, was Jerusalem. And the house where the blind and the lame were not welcome was, of course, the temple. The story is told in 2 Samuel 5, 6 through 10, also in 1 Chronicles 11. And now we are ready to see what Matthew is going to tell uh, in the story of how King Jesus came to Jerusalem and to the temple a thousand years later. It's part of the backdrop, the setting for the story we're going to enter tonight. A thousand years after King David took uh, the city of Jerusalem... A thousand years after the reign of King David, first century Jerusalem, week before the Passover, please stand for the reading of God's word. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 22. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written... My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. 
But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you ever read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you've prepared praise for yourself. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Now, in the morning, he was returning to the city, and he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there be any fruit from you. And at once, the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed, and they asked, How did this fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt... You will not only do what was done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Lord, open this word to us through the power of your Spirit. Some things appear to be clear that I suspect aren't as clear as they seem. Some things are confusing to our modern ears and understanding. We pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would speak to us and guide us. And Holy Spirit, help us to be obedient to this word. Amen. You may be seated. Now, we're in chapter 21 of, verse, uh, of Matthew, right? Chapter 21. Hey, Andy. Welcome back. That means we've been following Jesus for 20 chapters in Matthew's gospel, and we are used to Jesus teaching in parables. He tells these amazing stories that kind of maybe teach something complex, but in a way that people can sort of get. He uses everyday terminology. Sometimes his meanings are shaded or cryptid, but we're used to him teaching in parables. But if we pay attention to the text up to this point. Jesus also tells parables without words. He tells parables oftentimes through his actions. And in our text this evening, I'm going to suggest that Jesus is performing three parables through his actions. Jesus isn't just reacting to things that he sees. He isn't just giving teaching out of the blue. He is performing three living parables in three acts. And I think that all three of these living parables, these three acts, lead to the same conclusion. And that conclusion is, you're going to have to wait for it, right? Come on, stay awake. Here we go. Here we go. So, okay, so act one, Jesus comes into the city to great fanfare. The the text that Collins read, we learn that people are putting palm branches and waving them and putting their coats on the ground and, and crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. The first thing that Jesus does when he gets to Jerusalem, the capital city, is he goes to the temple. That is what leaders did when they went to any major city in the first century Near East and Mediterranean world. If you went to Rome, you would go to the temple. If you went to Corinth or Athens or Ephesus, you would go to the main temple of that city. Why? Because that's where decisions were made. That's where the sway of influence was. That's where people in power hung out. Quite different than today, isn't it? Like, Can you imagine a king or a queen or a prime minister uh, going to a foreign country If they wanted to go to the important place, they'd probably go to the capital or a place of economic center. Uh, Very rarely in the West do we think of the church or a temple 
as being the place where leaders hang out. Nonetheless, that's the way it was in the first century. So Jesus goes into the temple. He does what's expected. But when he arrives, he does something that is unexpected, both to the crowds who are following him and to the people who are running the temple. Using the same Greek word that is used when Jesus casts out demons from people, Jesus casts out the money changers and those who are selling doves and animals in the temple. He overturned the tables. And we're going to go ahead and see a picture of the, um, of the temple there. And Jen, you can just leave this up for a long time. <laughs> so we've got the, the temple of Herod. And if you can see my laser, uh, this whole area here and here is the court of the Gentiles. Um, and this is called uh, the porch or the portico, and under these pillars is kind of a covered area, so in the rain you could still have a place to hang out. But this is the area where people are exchanging money and buying and selling animals. This is part of the temple complex. It's the part of the place where the Gentiles were supposed to come worship, and then in this area is where the women could worship, and then you have a place where the Jewish men could worship, and then closer to the holy place, the Jewish priests could worship. So there's at least two forms of business going on in this huge court of the Gentiles. One is exchange of coinage. People traveled from all over the Roman Empire, Jewish people, to come to the Passover celebration to make their offerings. And when they got there, wherever native area they were from, uh, Ephesus or Tarsus or any of these places, even in Galilee, they have Roman coins on them. And that's how they do their daily business. The problem with these Roman coins is they have pagan symbols on them. And so you weren't supposed to use them as an offering to the Lord. So they'd have to come into the temple and exchange their money for acceptable coins to be used uh, to an offering to God. Had to be exchanged. Second, people came to the temple to pray and to worship, and part of that worship, especially at Passover, included providing an animal sacrifice. Animals sacrificed to God had to be without blemish and spot. They had to be pretty perfect. So you could conceivably bring your own animal from out of town. But I don't know if any of you noticed, like, us rolling up to the church retreat last weekend with three kids in tow. I mean, I've got an SUV. They never had SUVs back then. But even then, crap's pot, like, falling out of my car. I'm trying to keep Samar from running in the road. Now, think about you traveling 100 miles by foot to try and get to Jerusalem, and you're trying to also not only rein in your family, but also keep this sacrifice, be it a lamb or a dove, from flying away or running away or getting attacked by an animal or getting stolen from a highway robber or getting some kind of spot or blemish on it on the way there. The more convenient thing to do was to just show up at the temple with some coin and buy your animal there at the temple. None of these businesses, trading coins for acceptable coins, or buying and selling animals to be used for sacrifice, if done properly, none of those things are sinful in and of themselves. So what on earth is going on here? Why would gentle Jesus, who rides into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but on a donkey, on the foal of a donkey, why would he all of a sudden flip out and overturn tables and knock over cash drawers and knock over the seats of the money changers? Why why would he do that? What is this episode, this act one, supposed to teach us? Well, Jesus actually gives us some pretty direct 
hints, maybe even direct reasons. He quotes two scriptures from the Old Testament. The first says, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. This passage, this quote, is found in Isaiah 56, and it talks about whose house? God's house. And the statement means that God's house or temple shall have a reputation as a house of prayer. Or more holistically, that word for prayer means worship. So not just, not just praying like we think of saying our prayers, but worshiping the living God. Now why would Jesus quote that prayer, and what is that vision of a house of prayer have anything to do with trading money and buying and selling animals now despite popular teaching that i've encountered over the years and you probably have too the problem isn't with changing money or buying and selling things in a house of worship Uh, when you think about that just logically um, sometimes we might sell a product in the other room that's created by women who are escaping sex slavery and the proceeds go to support their new life or a few weeks ago deandra who's going on a mission trip to nicaragua comes with coffee that's fair trade from nicaragua and is selling it to help raise funds i don't think jesus is going to come in and kick our stuff over and say you're not supposed to do fundraisers right i I don't think that that is the issue the problem is not buying and selling changing money. The problem, I believe, is where these things took place. See, Isaiah 56 is this wonderful passage because it gives us a window into the heart of God. And in this passage, he talks about the nations, even Egyptians, Babylonians, people that kind of Israelites didn't like very much. Talked about these nations coming to worship God, where? In the temple. The temple was supposed to be the meeting place, the convergence of all the nations coming to worship God. When Jesus came into the temple, though, it was a center of segregation. Jewish priests closest to God, then Jewish men, then Jewish women, then Gentiles, all the non-Jews. And in, it's this court designed for Gentiles to come and worship where all of this noisy haggling like i don't know if, you, if you've traveled abroad and you've been to uh, a market in mexico or even in rome or a place like where people actually have some passion in their blood you don't just say how much is that oh it's five dollars here's five dollars you haggle over everything and things get loud and boisterous and and at one point the historian josephus tells us that during the first century the population of jerusalem would swell to hundreds of thousands of people he records one year that there were 256,000 sheep sold in that court of the Gentiles for Passover. Thousands of sheep every day eating and bleeding and relieving themselves in the place that was designated for the Gentiles to come and worship. If you're doing evangelism, you're trying to tell a non-Jewish person, God loves you and has a good plan for your life and wants to, you know, come worship in our temple. Oh, sorry about the mess, sorry about the bleeding, um, Hope that works out for you. It basically is a slap in the face to any non-Jewish person saying, we don't want you here. We don't think very highly of you. That's why Jesus is furious. And ironically, the Jews do this because they think Gentiles might make them unclean when in reality, they, through their actions, are making the whole Gentile court unclean. So to be clear... By quoting Isaiah 56, Jesus is pointing out the failure of the religious leaders to fulfill their mission as the people of God. Their mission 
was to reflect God's glory so the nations would come worship him. And instead, they've made it a marketplace. But there's more to this table turning than just the way they were treating the Gentiles. Jesus also quotes Jeremiah 7. He writes, or says, You're making the temple, intended to be a house of prayer, into a robber's den. See, Jeremiah 7 is this prophecy against the way the people of Israel were living their lives as adulterers, as murderers, as charlatans, as thieves, as oppressors of the poor and the widow for six days a week. And then on one day a week, as they come to the house of God to worship, they would say things like, God is on our side. We are the people of God. And Jeremiah was warning them, your life outside the walls of worship and your life inside the walls of worship should mesh together. And if you're going to come into the house of God, at least come with a penitent heart saying, we've screwed up outside the walls, Lord. We need your mercy. Now, why would Jesus quote this to the people in the temple? Well, we may suspect on good historical authority that at times, those selling animals for temple sacrifices inflated their prices. It was kind of like Disneyland. I took our kids, uh, Corey and I, uh, a trip there last November to surprise Stella for her fifth birthday. So, you know, airfare cost an arm and a leg. You can kind of see that. Okay, fuel costs a lot. Okay, so then you got to stay in a hotel. All right, I can suck that up. Then to get in the park, this is ridiculous. Okay, but okay, we want to go to Disneyland, so that's, that's part of the fair. But then you're in Disneyland, and you're stuck in these walls, and a burger costs like 20 bucks. And what are you going to do? I mean, it's basically, they have a monopoly, and they could say, well, you guys could bring your own food. Uh, good luck keeping it fresh in the 90-degree heat, uh, and while you're standing in line, like, fighting all these people. Good luck with that. Uh, burgers cost 20 bucks. So it does cost, you know, so it's just ridiculous. So, now, Disneyland is only a semi-good example because that was my choice to go there. The temple is the one place that you could go and get right with God to make your sacrifice. It was the place you were supposed to go as a Jewish person for the Passover. So to, to corrupt the system like this was, uh, was dubious. But what was really harsh is one historian writes that the doves that were sold at the temple were inflated sometimes as much as 25 times the going rate outside of Passover. The dove was the sacrifice, the, the, the cheapest sacrifice you could give, and it was the sacrifice the poor would give. So think about that. To inflate the price of the sacrifice that the poorest of the poor would be able to, to give is, is just sinister. And Jesus is furious about this. Finally, we see in Jesus' quote from Jeremiah 7, the charge that the leaders were making the house of God into a den of robbers. The, the Greek word for robbers could mean thief, but it more often means revolutionary or rebel or what we might call today a terrorist or an insurgent, depending on how you, what euphemism you want to use. Uh, so, for example, the two thieves, quote-unquote, on the cross on either side of Jesus, um, you don't get crucified in Rome for being a petty thief, a pickpocket. You get crucified in Rome for being a revolutionary, for being someone that is a threat to Caesar. So those men hanging on either side of Jesus on the crosses are probably terrorists or zealots or revolutionaries. So why did the temple inflate, allow inflated prices? Some scholars suggest it was to raise money for rebel forces working and scheming to overthrow Rome. Now, 
Do you catch the irony here? These people, the people of God, have access to the living God. Their scripture is full of time and time again of God delivering them and rescuing them and forgiving their sin over and over and over again. And basically, by supporting these rebel strategies, they're saying, God, you work too slowly for us. We're going to use your house to raise money to get the job done. Rome will pay for what they've done to us and to your temple, of course. And our plan, of course, uh, will bring you glory once we're all done with it. It really doesn't sound so far-fetched when I think about my life sometimes. Like making plans and then rubber stamping it with a prayer on either side. You ever fall into that trap? Jesus has come to the temple and found in it works of abomination. Okay, that's act one. A living parable. Okay, let's begin act two. As Jesus is condemning what the temple had become people start to come to him, particular kind of people, the blind and the lame, in the temple, the place where they're forbidden, they come in the temple and Jesus heals them. The very people that the first David cursed back in 2 Samuel 5 are now invited into the holy temple and are made clean by Jesus, the new David, if you will, the son of David, Isaiah 35 speaks of Yahweh himself coming to visit his people and healing some particular types of people, the blind and the lame. Where would one expect to find God in the first century AD? In the temple. The temple had become corrupt. Gentiles were not welcomed, let alone the blind and the lame. And yet when Jesus is present, they find healing and inclusion. The experts of scripture, the religious leaders, the senior pastors, spotlights on me, are, are furious because children see these things happening and they begin to sing Hosanna, son of David, literally, God save us, Messiah. And even though Jesus was fulfilling scripture, the leaders could not look past the surface that Jesus was a troublemaker, untraditional, a disturber of the peace. And then Jesus says something shocking. He quotes Psalm 8 saying, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. That Psalm 8 is referring to God's enemies. The powerful men of the world have placed themselves in opposition to God, but he has prepared praise for himself from the weakest in the world, the children who sing his praises. In Psalm 8, The children are singing the praises of whom? God. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? What Jesus is saying? If he is talking about himself in terms of the the children singing his praises, he's making a huge statement about his identity, which at the close of uh, Act 2, it's pretty smart that Jesus then decides to leave because once the Pharisees get their mind around what he had just said, it might be kind of hostile for him. So he heads two miles out of town to Bethany, probably the house of Mary and Martha, as John's Gospel tells us, and he stays there each night throughout the Passover week. Begin Act 3. It opens with Jesus returning to Jerusalem 
And on the way, we get this strange story about Jesus being hungry. Uh, that's not so weird, but what's weird is he goes to this lone fig tree on the side of a road in a season when figs probably weren't ripe. He sees that it has leaves but no figs, and he gets mad, and he curses it, and it shrivels up like right in front of him. It's, it's kind of weird. I, I don't know if you've thought about that. That is a strange story. Um, and actually, that part of the story is, is not so difficult to explain once we get the context. Um, because all throughout the Old Testament, Israel is referred to by a number of metaphors. Two primary metaphors are as a vine or a vineyard or as a fig tree. So the nation of Israel is sometimes referred to in the Old Testament. I'm thinking of Hosea 2, uh, Jeremiah 8, Hosea 9, Micah 7. These are four of many examples, but of Israel being referred to as a fig tree. So in Act 1, Jesus exposes corruption in the temple. In Act 2, he exposes corruption in temple leadership. And in Act 3, he's suggesting the corruption of Israel. They have failed in their mission to be a light to the nations and reflect God's reign. They have not been what? Fruitful. They've not been fruitful. Now, To me, the hard part of this interpretation comes from the disciples' question. If I'm one of the disciples and I see Jesus curse this fig tree and it shrivels up, I'd be like, why did you do that? What are you trying to communicate? The disciples say, how did you do that? Which I guess would be my second question. That's a cool trick. How did you do that? And specifically, how, when you said those words of curse, did it immediately shrivel up like that? It's almost like they're enamored with the power uh, of Jesus. Why did you, or how did you do it? And the crazy thing is that Jesus answers their question, thus, to my thinking, validates their question. He doesn't say you're asking the wrong question, here's what you need to know. He actually answers their question of how he did this. It's through faith, if you don't doubt. And just before you think we're going down a road of like self-help or positive thinking, there are two qualifiers here in the text. First of all, faith to do what? In the first instance, it's faith to say to this mountain, be cast into the sea. Now, think geographical context. He's on his way from Bethany to Jerusalem, sees the fig tree. The dominant mountain, the one that they've been talking about, is the temple mount. If you have faith and believe even this temple mount representing all this corruption I just condemned yesterday will be thrown into the sea, which is, of course, biblically a symbol of chaos, uh, godlessness. The temple's been judged. It might as well be cast into the ocean. Uh, uh, It's metaphorical. This is not a call to be like Yoda going around, if I just think faithfully and don't doubt I could lift my car or this pew or a mountain. I mean, there's a couple of reasons that's not what Jesus is talking about. The first is that's stupid. I mean, can you imagine, like, yeah, that's just not what Jesus is talking about. Um, the, the second reason is because this is not just a general call to if you have faith and believe, you can get stuff done, whatever you want. Faith in Matthew, as Dale Bruner points out, is always faith in Jesus. So when he says having faith Uh, If you believe without doubting, uh, ask for what you want and and it will accomplish it. He's talking about faith in Jesus. Faith in whom you trust. Up to this point, by the way, when the disciples have asked Jesus, teach us to pray, he always has them pray 
to the Father. We prayed that prayer uh, earlier. Our Father who is in heaven. Jesus himself prays to the Father. But the implication here is that their faith would be placed in Jesus. Isn't that amazing? End Act 3. Three living parables. What do they communicate? That the house of prayer and worship has been turned into an institution of corruption. That the master of the house of prayer has come, and the people holding the fort rejected Jesus like Denethor, steward of Gondor, rejected Aragorn when he came to get his throne, right? Okay, if you didn't get that, just let it go. Uh, They rejected the rightful king. And ultimately, these three living parables tell us that the loci, the locus of worship of the living God has shifted now away from the temple, away from exclusively Israel, who had failed in her mission to bring the nations to worship God. And now we see that Jesus is making himself the locus of faith. He is the healer of the blind and the lame and the nations. By the way, fulfilling the prophecy in Isaiah 35 that was cast for God himself. Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is Israel personified. He fulfills the mission of the nations to the nations. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Yes, ask anything in my name, says Jesus, and it will be done for you. Jesus is the house of prayer. You and I no longer need to travel to Jerusalem to make sacrifices. Faith in Jesus is what saves. Amen. That's a lot cheaper. Um, He sacrificed himself for the sake of the world. He died for you and me so that through faith in him, we might have forgiveness of sin and eternal life. But the news is even better than when this story took place. As Jesus is saying this to his disciples, he's saying, the temple's obsolete. I am the new temple. I am the center of worship. But when Jesus died, he rose and ascended. Fifty days later, what happened? The Holy Spirit fell upon the church. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building is being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. In Christ, through faith in Him, those of us, even who are not Jewish, are not only allowed to worship God in a special court outside on the fringe, but we are also fellow citizens of the same standing before God. There is no difference then in Christ between Jew and Gentile, male, female, adult or child, lame or blind, emotionally stable and well put together, and struggling like most of us are some of the time with depression and confusion and imperfection. There is no difference before Christ. 
There are no dividing walls anymore between us and God. They've been abolished. The temple and its divisions and its walled access to God, the veil, all of it, is obsolete. There is a new temple. Hear me. If you're asleep, wake up for this. This is not a rejection of the old. This is not replacing Israel. But this is built on the foundation, as Paul says, on the foundation of the apostles, on the foundation of the prophets, who all, by the way, pointed to Jesus anyway. Even the temple itself always, always, always was pointing to something more, pointing to Jesus, who is the cornerstone and the main foundation. Okay, now this is even more mind-blowing. I know, you've had your mind blown, but check this out. The temple, of course, is not, not just Jesus anymore. It is wherever the Holy Spirit dwells. And guess where the Holy Spirit now dwells? In you and I, in the church. Where is the house of prayer? It's the church. You and I are the dwelling place of God. We are the place that God designed the nations to come and meet God. So if you're waiting for some other group or some other organization or somebody else to do it, we're abdicating our job. We are the place people are supposed to meet with the living God. The church is the new people of God chosen in Christ to reflect God's kingdom and His glory. Receive that as really good news. That's, that's a fact that I've derived out of this, these three acts. That's just the way it is. You don't have to do anything. You're like, oh, maybe I'm not a temple yet. Maybe I'm just a brick. Uh, no, you're part of the church through faith in Christ and through your baptism. God's in you, whether you feel like it or not. It's just one of the mysteries, okay? So there, that's good news. Take it. Thanks to Jesus, the only wall between God and us is our own heart. Repentance grants us access, and pride in our sinfulness keeps us separated. That's it. There's no earning. Jesus has done all that. It's all attitude. It's all heart. Now, that's really good news. Hello, temple of God, bearer of the Holy Spirit. That's what you are. Whether you think you are or not, that's what you are. And because of that, I'm going to leave us with three implications to wrestle with once we leave, okay? So if you're a note taker, you might want to write these three down. The first is, if your heart is a house of God, what does Jesus find there when he visits? He's already there all the time, but imagine him peering in there right now. What tables might he overturn in your heart? What might you ask him for help with? Number two, if your heart is a house of God, then do you have the reputation as a house of prayer? Do you trust Jesus or are you impatient like the terrorists in the temple and merely asking God to bless the plans you already have? Prayer is not easy. Like, I know that's not a newsflash. Um, And I, for one, um, sometimes take pleasure in other people's misery because it makes me feel more normal. And I love the fact that 
all of the spiritual great ones from Teresa of Avila to John Cashin, uh, Catherine of Siena, all of these wonderful people that I look up to as masters of prayer, the further they go in prayer, the more they frequently write, I am just a novice. I'm so bad at this. And so many of these great ones in prayer have found going back to the scriptures and praying the prayers of Paul, praying the prayers of Jesus is very helpful. So I just want to offer you two prayers to help you get jump-started if you're kind of stuck in your prayer life. One would be the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. The other would be the other Lord's Prayer in John 17. The beauty of praying those, if you're stuck or you don't feel it, as we often say in evangelical circles, I don't feel it, uh, is that it doesn't matter how you feel when you pray the prayers of Jesus. You're praying for good stuff that he agrees with totally, and it works. When you pray the words of Jesus, stuff gets done, whether you see it or not. Trust me. Third implication, if the church whole is to be a house of prayer, if we house the holy, then how can you contribute to this mission and this reputation? How can you contribute to that mission and that reputation? to join me in prayer. Jesus, I thank you that before you ask anything of us, you declare good news. Thank you that you have done the work of uh, rescuing us, not only from the consequences of our sin, but from a life of sin. That you offer new creation resurrection life. Lord, we're upfront about the fact that we get sidetracked so often that we um, delude ourselves, that we pick sinful paths uh, for short-term gain and short-term pleasure. Lord, it is an amazing reality that you choose to dwell in us, in me, Lord, Sometimes I wonder what you're thinking, and then I remember it doesn't matter because that's just the way it is. And so, Lord, help us to, uh, to live into the reality that you've chosen your church to be your people, to dwell in us, to reflect your goodness and loving kindness through our word and our deed in this world. Lord, may many come to know you and worship you and love you through our witness. Lord, I'm sure we all feel inadequate in that. I know I do. And so I pray, Lord, that you would remind us of our high calling and the fact that you've not called us and sent us to go alone, but you dwell in us through your spirit, equipping us for every good work. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.